you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and open to the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the one in front of you in the pew rack, and you can find it on page 225. Today we have the privilege of beginning a new series. The series is going to be called The King is Coming. There's really two ways to understand that statement. Of course, in the ultimate sense, the King, King Jesus, is coming back. But we also know that from the standpoint of the recipients of this particular book at this time in Old Covenant history, they were looking forward to a different king, a human king, and that is the story. In fact, it is called the book of Samuel because Samuel will prove to be one of the main characters, and it is called 1 Samuel because in the original writing of it, it was so long uh, that it took up two scrolls. There wasn't a first and a second Samuel originally. It was divided up that way because the account was so long. Today, we are going to look at 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 3. The title for the message is Samuel, Prophet, Priest, and Judge. The argument, I believe, that the author is making here in the first three chapters of 1 Samuel is that God and His Word return to Israel. God and His Word return to Israel. Now, at the beginning of any book study, it's important for us to get our bearings. Let's make sure we understand where we are in terms of geography and where we are in terms of redemptive history. Let's begin with the geography aspect of this. Uh, You'll notice when we get into this account that we have moved to a particular location, and that location is called Shiloh. And that's very important because if you go back in your memory just a week earlier to when we were wrapping up the book of Exodus, I hope you will remember that the main way that God demonstrated His ongoing personal presence with the Israelites was through the creation and establishment of something called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a three-sided walled structure with a fabric roof to it that made it look like a tent, and that was the place uh, where the very presence of Yahweh dwelt. It might be worth mentioning to you in case you're relatively new to us. Why do we use that term Yahweh? Well, that's because it is the Lord's covenant name. It's His personal name, a name that was revealed, we read in the book of Exodus, to Moses and wasn't even revealed to Abraham, the one with whom He made the covenant originally. And in your English translation, if you come across the word Lord and it is written in all capital letters… That is the English translator's way of identifying the fact that this is the covenant name for God, Yahweh. And so when I read the Scriptures to you, I just go ahead and replace that word. It really conveys to us the importance of realizing that God, the covenant-making God, is at work in and through His people, and that has never changed, even when there was a famine in the land, as it were, and He seems to have gone silent. Well, this tabernacle traveled with the people of Israel throughout their entire conquest. When Joshua took over from Moses, and they began systematically going into the land that God had promised them. And throughout the period of Joshua, when they had finally settled the land promised to them, in Joshua chapter 18, it says that this tabernacle came to rest in a place called Shiloh. And there it remained for 369 years. It was there where the people would go every year, and they would engage in the worship that God had required of them as His covenant people. However, there's also a 
personal history that we need to understand. In, in fact, as you know, because it was just read to you in the book of Ruth, that not only do we have the time of the conquest in Joshua, but then came the book of Judges. And Judges, if we remember nothing else about the book of Judges, it is usually the phrase that during that time, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it is during that time of the Judges that God does something amazing uh, when he takes a man and he allows him to leave his area that had been given to him by covenant, and he goes to sojourn in a place called Moab, and there his two sons take Moabite wives. They were marrying outside of their ethnic clan. That was even against God's express preference and law. And yet in the midst of all of that, despite the fact that he dies, his sons die, one of these Moabite daughters stays with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and they go back, and it is during that time that the great Redeemer is identified on a human level. His name is Boaz, and Boaz marries Ruth. And as you know from the end of the account, that Boaz and Ruth, they have a son named Obed, and Obed has a son named Jesse. And while Jesse is raising his eight sons, Samuel is growing up in Shiloh. That's why I think the next place for us to land in our study of the Old Covenant as we work our way through that two-thirds of your Bible, which is so often overlooked, unfortunately, would be a study in this particular section of God's Word, because what we're going to realize there is that God is on the move again, and He is going to go from this judge, prophet, priest named Samuel to the institution of the monarchy in Israel something that ultimately points to the true King, King Jesus, who will come, and His kingdom, as we have sung already, is forever. Amen? Please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 1 Samuel chapter 1. There are really four important points that are happening here. We're going to see this throughout the text of these first three chapters. We're going to see a vow and a prayer and a prophecy and a calling, a vow, a prayer, a prophecy, and a calling. And for the sake of time, I'm going to simply read the text. I'm going to explain it as we go. Join me in verse 1. This is God's Word. There was a certain man of Renathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim. This was his residence. You are meant to hear this at the very beginning to know where he is from because he's going to be an important character in the story. This is where he lives. He lives in the area that was designated for the tribe of Ephraim. And his name is Elkanah, and he is the son of Jeroham, of Elihu, of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Now this is important because you need to know his lineage. His lineage was everything in a patriarchal society, who you were was identified by who your father was and your grandfather and your great-grandfather, and the author is going to great lengths to where he can identify this person as actually being from the tribe of Levi, but living in the tribal land given to Ephraim. Verse 2 tells us that he was a man that had two wives. Polygamy is not something that God suggested was a solution to anything, nor something that anybody should aspire to. 
In fact, the first indication of polygamy happens back in Genesis when we see Lamech, the seventh from Adam through the line of Cain, when he takes two wives. It's very instructive to us that the first indication of this is by a man who is set up in the book of Genesis as being an example of preeminent evil. And yet, what I think you have here is an indication of a man who is maybe more pragmatic. And what this particular individual has done is he has taken two wives. The name of the first one is Hannah. I believe she is named first because she was likely the first wife that he had. And the name of the other is Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this, for us, might be something of just a curiosity, but for them, it communicates everything. There are two wives. One is barren, and the other is not. And in those days, essentially, if you didn't have children, you were putting the entire family at risk of extinction. I believe that the reason that Hannah is mentioned first here is because she was likely the first wife, and because she was barren, Elkanah had in his mind no other alternative but to take a second wife, one that could have children. It's not very dissimilar to what happened with Abram, remember? He and Sarai couldn't have children, and so even though God promised that he would, he had originally named somebody else an heir, somebody who was born in his household. And then, when the promise didn't seem to be fulfilled, Sarai had the great idea of giving him her servant, Hagar, so that he could then have a child through her. So what you see here is the fact that in those days, if you had no children, you had no hope. Mothers were heroes. The great heroes of the Old Covenant patriarchal society were mothers, because it was through a mother that the family was able to be preserved financially. It was through motherhood that the culture was to be preserved. It was through motherhood that soldiers could be raised up to defend the country with the military. It was through mothers that any hope of a future existence of your tribe or your nation existed. Mothers in those days were held in the highest esteem. Every culture has the pressure that they put on women. In this culture, the greatest pressure wasn't so much your external appearance. It certainly wasn't your career goals. It was whether or not you were able to bring to adulthood healthy children. In those days, at least half of your children died in infancy. And so women had many, many children. And those who had children, especially sons who could live to adulthood, they were the ones who were going to protect her in the future because everything came down to the sons. It didn't come down to the daughters. And so allow yourself to go back into the story for a moment. Here's a woman with no sons. Here's a woman with no children. Let me explain how this would play out. Time goes on. Elkanah gets old. All of his estate goes to the children. The children belong to Penina. The oldest of Penina's sons get twice as much as everybody else. Everyone else gets the rest. Penina's oldest son is responsible then for taking care of Penina and the rest of his siblings. Where does that put Hannah? Completely outside the family. It was not uncommon or unreasonable in those days in that culture for Hannah at the time of Elkanah's death to simply have been kicked out of the family compound. She would have been one of those widows, destitute. She would have been the very person similar to Naomi who comes back saying, I went out full and I've come back empty. I've got nothing. I've got no hope. 
Hannah is in an utterly desperate situation. And I don't mean this to be condescending in any sense, but I would say to this, both to the women in the audience and to the men, I would suggest that we have virtually no comprehension about how devastating the situation was. The reader of this in the original context would have seen the opening of 1 Samuel as having the blackest backdrop imaginable. It's not consequential that it's placed right beside the book of Ruth, which had a similarly black backdrop when it opened up. It's absolutely fascinating. But back to this little family that we're about to learn. He says in verse 3, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, at Shiloh. He was a faithful man. But it was there in Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests. One day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions. What he did was he would go and he would offer something to the Lord. And the way that it was customarily done is that some of what you offered to the Lord as your sacrifice was then given back to you. And you took it back to your family and you ate together and you celebrated and you feasted. And he came back with a portion of the meat and the bread and the wine. And he would give that to Penina, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters. Here she is set up as the example of the ultimate wife, the ultimate woman. She's got sons and daughters in abundance, and this husband comes back and he gives her a portion. But notice this, it's meant to get your attention. In verse 5, but to Hannah he gave a double portion. Now this was an act of love, but was it also an act of favoritism? And it's bad enough when you've got two wives. That never once worked out well in the whole history of the Bible. As a matter of fact, in case you're wondering, there wasn't a single polygamous marriage anywhere in the Scriptures which did not end up being utterly and completely ruinous to everybody who was involved in it. But here he comes back, and though perhaps he meant well, he is showing favoritism to Hannah, which is always trouble, and he gives her a double portion. It's somewhat ironic and silly, isn't it? Here's a woman that has no children, and he is heaping upon her twice the meat, twice the bread, twice the wine. It's almost absurd. Women and men slept separately in their own tents, and what you would have is a servant going into Hannah's tent, and there she is surrounded by this gigantic feast. It's a way for her husband to say, I love you, but it's almost absurd to anybody looking on. It says here that he loved her. It's a word that is meant to suggest preferential love. It's the same love that is mentioned elsewhere, for example, that Isaac had for one of his sons and Rebecca another. <laughs> it is meant to communicate to you that there is this special love, a preferential love of one over the other. And he loves her even though Yahweh had closed her womb. You see, he understood his theology. He knew where this came from. Verse 6, and her rival used to provoke her, and she would provoke her grievously. If you were to translate this, you know, literally, you would say that she would provoke her to anger with constant provoking. And then the English translation that I use, the English Standard Version, I think comes up woefully short by describing this as to irritate her. In fact, the word in the Hebrew is literally the word to thunder. Penina is so relentless in her provoking, so merciless in her mocking, 
so cruel in the way that she goes right at the most sensitive aspect of Hannah's life, that she relentlessly provokes her day by day by day to the point where Hannah is left as somebody with nothing but an internal thunder of rage and grief. Now, I know perhaps you've got a flannel graph view of Hannah. May I adjust that a little bit for you this morning? Have you ever been so sad it thundered within you? Have you ever been filled with so much grief it just caused your brain to explode? Have you ever been filled with so much anger you feel like you couldn't even think straight? This is Hannah. Hannah has come to the end of herself. And the reason is because Yahweh had closed her womb. Hannah was a failure. Hannah was somebody that Penina could look at and say, you're amounting to nothing in terms of being a woman in Israel. And so it went year by year. As often as she went up to the house of Yahweh, she used to provoke her, and therefore Hannah wept. And once again, it's such an inadequate translation. Oh, she wept, but she wept the same weeping that Hagar wept. Just to reach back and get a little bit of a picture from the past, when Abraham went into Sarah's servant Hagar and had a child, Ishmael, Sarah came back and got very angry with Abraham. Apparently, she forgot it was her idea in the first place, and she says, you must do something about this. And Sarah was an abusive woman. She deeply and terribly abused Hagar, and then when she couldn't abuse her enough, she told Abraham to send her away into the desert with her 13-year-old son to wander out there in the extreme heat until they died of hunger until they died of thirst. And when she got to the very end of her resources, and as a mother, she couldn't bear to watch the excruciatingly slow death of her son by thirst and starvation, she put him under a shade tree, and then she went an arrow shot away, and she sat down and she wept. Brothers and sisters, she didn't just cry. She wept the, wep- the weeping of a mother who's watching death. That's how Hannah weeps. It's the same word plucked out of there, and I don't think it's incidental. And so she's weeping, the the weeping of a woman who is utterly cursed and destitute, and she wouldn't eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why don't you eat, and why is your heart sad? Allow me to stop there for a moment. I don't think he's asking a question that he expects to get an answer for. I think he is simply expressing the fact that this can't go on forever. This can't, there's got to be some way around this. And then he says, am I not more to you than ten sons? I know it's very easy now to make jokes. I know it's very easy to take what Elkanah said and put him up as a portrait of one of the dumbest husbands in the history of the biblical record. And I know that lots of preachers do, and there's a lot of great sort of bits you could right as a consequence of this comment, but I'm going to avoid that temptation. Instead, what I'm going to say to you is that I think in all sincerity, he comes to her and he says something that was probably not well phrased. Perhaps he should have said something like, don't you know that you're worth more to me than 10 sons? That might have been somewhat comforting, but here's the reality of it. I believe she did love Elkanah, and I believe Elkanah loved her, but there was nothing that Elkanah could do for her instead of a son. And what's so amazing is that she doesn't respond to him either in anger or in kindness. 
She doesn't respond to her adversary, Penina. And I want you to notice that whenever there's narrative and the author inserts something of a nature like a comment, it makes you sit up and take notice. And the literary device being used by the author here is to bring you to the point where you were expecting an answer. If you were a, a Hebrew person reading this in Hebrew, this is exactly what you'd be expecting right now. So Penina's come in and she's made her statements, and Elkanah's come in and he's made his statements, and now something's got to happen. Hannah's got to make a decision. Does she go over there and attack Penina, <laughs> or does she embrace Elkanah? Does she go over and have this, you know, Jerry Springer kind of cat fight with Penina? Or does she turn to Elkanah and say, you know what, you're right. And if this world runs out of lovers, we'll still have each other. Nothing's going to stop us now. <laughs> this is what you're expected to be thinking right now. And the author does something that no one was expecting. And she answers neither. What does she do? She turns to the Lord. I want you to see that rather than addressing her enemy, rather than addressing her husband, she gets on the move. Verse 9, and after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, that would be the others, of course, Hannah rose. That's a very important word. Hannah rose. This, this would have been the moment in the scene when everybody realizes that something's about to happen. I love the way that when God is on the move, He tends to move through women, especially women who in the culture were not viewed as very important. Uh, women who were seen as being a cast-off, women who were seen as being useless to society. It is through Hannah that He's going to move because Hannah moves. Hannah rose. Oh, she did more than just get up. This is her on the move. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of Yahweh. By the way, they use the word temple here for the first time in the Old Covenant because this tent had now become a bit more of a semi-permanent structure. 369 years means you've got to do a little bit to reinforce it. And so that's what you have. In verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to Yahweh and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, Yahweh of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, Lord of the armies, Lord of power, a Lord who is able to do anything, Lord who literally spoke the very universe and the stars into existence almost as an afterthought, Lord who manages the galaxies, O Lord of hosts, if you indeed will look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life. It's a unique statement. It was not uncommon to give people over to Yahweh to serve, but it was very unusual for that to happen all the days of his life. We don't really have many examples of that in the Scriptures. And she says no razor will touch his head. Now why is it that she says no razor will touch his head? Because she's vowing a vow, a Nazarite vow. You can go back to number six and read about it. A Nazarite vow was something that you could do voluntarily. It was a way for you who weren't part of the tribe of Levi, the official priests of God, to go into temple service. And this was open to anybody. It was open to people from any tribe. It was open to men or women. And you could simply declare the Nazarite vow, and it was for a period of time. 
And at the end of that time, when your vow was over, you would shave your head. This is why Paul shaved his head in the book of Acts. He had come to the end of his vow. And so what would happen is that you would go under the requirements of this vow, and it had some interesting things that you weren't allowed to do. Number one is cut your hair. So if you take a Nazarite vow and you don't cut your hair, it means it just gets longer and longer and longer. And believe me, even in those days, it was obvious. People's hair was long. It was unkempt. It was different. There was something about them that set them apart. Number two, you weren't allowed to touch anything that was dead This extended even to your own close family members. It meant you couldn't attend the funeral of your father or your mother or your son or your daughter or your wife or your husband. And then also you were not allowed to take anything from the fruit of the vine. It was far more than a requirement to abstain from alcohol. It was a requirement to abstain from anything that came from the grapes. You couldn't even have raisins. You couldn't have anything that had grapes in it. Why? Because in those days, you might recall we mentioned this earlier, the grape, this is where you get the uh, milk and honey from, the honey was the, was the grape, the sweetness that came out of the grape. The grape was a picture of God's provision. The grape was an indication that you had made it and that you were settled. In those days, you couldn't get a crop of grapes for the first three years. So anytime someone had a vineyard or planted a vineyard, it meant, I'm going to stay. This is my permanent home. I'm going to gather something from this vineyard. I'm going to enjoy it. One of the blessings that was given to the children of Israel when they finally took over the land God had promised is that Solomon says, now all of you are under your own fig tree and under your own vineyard. When Joshua and the rest of the spies came back from the land of Canaan, what did they choose to bring? They brought back a huge cluster of grapes. Well, this Nazarite couldn't have the grapes, couldn't touch anything dead, couldn't cut their hair, and they were dedicated to the service of the Lord. And this is the vow that Hannah makes. Her heart is with God. She doesn't respond to anybody on the human level. She goes straight to God. And I love the fact that she doesn't pray for revenge against Penina. Weren't you expecting maybe a, a little bit of an imprecatory psalm there? Oh, Lord, rain down judgment on Penina. I mean, don't kill her, but just, you know, do whatever it takes to shut her up. Or maybe she would have uh, prayed a prayer for some kind of personal gain. Lord, I've uh, waited for a long time. I've been very patient. And I, I really think now is the time for you to honor my faithfulness. Furthermore, this is not something that she's doing to bribe the Lord. It's not like she is saying, well, if you give me a child, I'll make him a Nazarite. Why? Because that would defeat the purpose. If the child is a Nazarite, guess what? He's of no practical value to her as an heir because as a Nazarite that he would be from birth until his death, he would be like the Levites, and they, they got no inheritance. As she was giving him back to the Lord, when Elkanah died, he wouldn't receive anything anyway. And this is an absolute willingness on the part of Hannah to give up anything for herself. And what it proves is that she's gotten past the idea that the most important thing in life is a child and living up to the expectations of the women around her and the most important thing in life is God. She is revealing that her heart is in the right place with respect to Yahweh. And in this, she demonstrates not only her belief in his transcendence, but also her belief in his imminence. He has created and governs everything, but he also knows her intimately. And she's asking no one's permission. She doesn't ask Elkanah if it's okay. She goes and she says, I'm on the move. I know what I'm doing. I know what I want to do, and I'm going to do it. Verse 12, 
As she continued praying before Yahweh, Eli observed her, and Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, and her voice was not heard. May I interject just a historical note here? It was very uncommon in those days to pray silently. It's a phenomenon of our culture to pray individually, silently. Most people prayed out loud back then, so this was unusual for them. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? You've got to really appreciate the kind pastoral care of Eli. Wouldn't you love to have Pastor Eli? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, just a term of respect. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before Yahweh. To play on words there, one of the things that you did during the celebrations, the festivals, is that you would take what you had uh, tithed to the Lord, 10% of your income, you would turn that into money, you would buy whatever you want, food, and specifically wine and strong drink. And so it was very common for people in those days during the festivals to have a little more than they should, and as a result, drunkenness was a problem. And she says, nope, I haven't even had the customary wine or the strong drink, but play on words, I've been pouring out not the wine, but pouring out my soul. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. Ironic statement, because if you jump ahead to chapter 2, verse 12, it's his own sons that are worthless. But she says, don't talk to me as if I'm a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the Lord of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. I confess, I'm not entirely certain. Was she talking to Eli, or was she saying something back to the Lord? Oh, Eli has spoken. Eli has acknowledged it. And perhaps in her grief as she goes out of there, exhausted from crying. Have you ever been cried so much you're just exhausted? Collapsed, as it were, because you've got nothing else to give? You can't even speak anymore? You've just cried yourself to a place where there's nothing left? I view her as being in that situation. But she doesn't go away destitute anymore. That's behind her now. She says, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way. And what did she do? She didn't collapse in a heap in her tent. She ate. You see, she had come to the point where she understood that Yahweh was in control. It's not unlike what happened when after days and days of praying and fasting and not even washing, David finally is told that his son is dead. And at that point, when his servants think he's going to take his own life and commit suicide out of grief, that's when he stands up and eats and washes. Why? Because he understands that Yahweh will do what Yahweh will do. And in the same way, Hannah is saying, Yahweh will do what Yahweh will do. And I believe that she had a degree of confidence that he was on the move. God was working through her to do an amazing thing in Israel. And so it says that she ate, and her face was no longer sad. You see, it's in God that she finds peace. Can I just say something very interesting to you today that came to me as I was considering this? At least I found it very interesting. I think that if this was written today, people in our culture, it would go something like this. She prayed, God gave her a son, and then she was at peace. But for Hannah, it operates very differently, because Hannah's mind's in a very different spot, isn't it? She prays, she has peace, and then she has a son. You see, her peace is not linked to the answer. Her peace is linked to the request. 
And she puts her faith in God and says, now in that alone I have peace. And I will, as we have sung earlier today, wait for you. And verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before Yahweh. And this was customary of this family. And then they went back to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah. And this is obviously a euphemism for normal intercourse between husband and wife. And Yahweh remembered her. Not that he had forgotten, of course. It's a word used in the Hebrew to say he goes back to look at his covenant promises, the promises made to Hannah, the promise made to Abraham. And in due time, in his providence, Hannah conceived and she bore a son and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from Yahweh. Once again, not to overstress this point, but isn't it lovely the fact that she is so much the one who is the center of the narrative. She is the one who goes to Yahweh. She is the one who vows the vow. She is the one who says that his name is Samuel, and she is the one who realizes it came from Yahweh. As she is the center of this narrative, we are meant to focus around her, and Elkanah, who plays a little bit of a secondary role, comes along, verse 21, and all his house went up to offer to Yahweh the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. It's unclear to us what that vow was. I suspect that when he found out that Hannah had made a vow, he made a similar vow to God. He sort of reinforced it. Hannah came back, and he notices, Hannah, you seem to be feeling better. Hannah, you're eating. Hannah, things are going great. Hannah, what happened? And Hannah says, oh, I made a vow to the Lord that if he gives me a child, he's going to be a Nazarite. And, and Elkanah does what most husbands would do in a situation like that. And he just goes, uh, 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 hmm. And maybe later on, as they're talking about it, he says, well, then, you know, I, I affirm you, and I believe that what you're doing is right, and I, I want to support you in this, and I, too, will make this vow to the Lord. I want you to know that I'm not going to try to undo it. It's speculation among the rabbis and the experts in Torah law right now, but there was a way, a provision in the book of Numbers for a husband or a father to actually undo the vow of a wife or a daughter. Now, there doesn't seem to be any direct application to the Nazarite vow, so it might not have applied. But here, I believe that Elkanah is saying, I'm not going to get in the way of you and Yahweh. I'm not going to try to undo your vow. I'm supporting your vow. I think Elkanah was a good man. I think Elkanah was doing the best he could in a very dark and difficult situation, whereas we'll come to see later on, the word of the Lord was almost absent, and the priesthood and the ministry and the spiritual leaders were utterly devoid of character. They were bankrupt spiritually, and they were corrupt. And it's usually into those situations that God does this amazing work, isn't it? Verse 22, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him up, so that he may appear in the presence of Yahweh and dwell there forever. She says, you go, I'm staying. And I'm going to stay until the child is weaned, in case you're wondering what exactly uh, that would entail or how long that would be. From what we understand in those days, it was typically between three and five years old. She said, I'm going to stay, and I am going to focus entirely on Samuel. I'm going to resist the urge to say more than I should at this moment, but let me just say clearly and emphatically and state my absolute affirmation and my encouragement to all of our young moms who are dedicating themselves to the raising of their children who are intensely and deliberately and specifically focused on those little ones in those precious years. I believe it was one of the philosophers, Aristotle, who said, give me a child for the first seven years and I'll give you the man. 
Those first early years are the most important. Those years, perhaps, that Hannah had between birth and age five, let me say this unequivocally, the only and best early childhood education happens at home. And you mothers are heroes. Don't let the peninas of the modern world tell you that you should be chasing something else or that you should be investing in something else or giving yourself to something else. Believe me, I've witnessed it in my own home. There is nothing greater than you being able to focus in on that little one and raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So much for resisting to say anything. But I'll add this too, and I'm not trying to be funny. You, you are uniquely gifted that way. It's different with men. It's different with husbands. It's different with fathers. I don't know what it is. We don't have quite the same ability. God just didn't build us the same way as you do to have that influence in them. And I affirm you and I applaud you and so should everyone else. And you should be thankful for your mothers. We have the kids with us in the service, the children today because it's the first Sunday. And I want to remind you of that amazing blessing if that's what you enjoy. Well, it's the greatest work in the world. And so she stays there so that she can then give him to the Lord, notice it forever. What did those words feel like coming out of her mouth? To give him back to the Lord forever. She knew the time would come when she had to give him up. And when she did, that would be it. And so she says, I'm staying. I know we're supposed to go up every year, but I'm staying. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. I mean, the more we read about him, I mean, he's sort of husband of the year. He says, I, I'm not going to make you come. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to throw God's law in your face. Very well. I trust you. I affirm you. You do what seems best to you. You wait until you have weaned him. Only may Yahweh establish his word. I love that word. It's the word to arise again. He says in the same way that as she rose up to make this move and all of redemptive history is hinging on it, he says, may God arise and may his word stand up to affirm you. He's sensitive both to Hannah and to God. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. There's such a deep humanity here, isn't it? A tenderness, a sweetness. Can you picture it? You're supposed to. It's a powerful bond between Hannah and this little miracle child. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull. Bulls get big quick, in case you're wondering. Three-year-old bulls are big animals. It's a big sacrifice. And she comes up with this big bull sacrifice. A large animal, very significant, very expensive, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of Yahweh at Shiloh. And the child was young. It's no longer a baby. He's been weaned. He's able to kind of look out for himself, as it were. And they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. I don't know how much of this was shared with the child along the way. Was it like Isaac, who was asking questions of Abraham, where's the sacrifice? Was this child asking, why are we bringing a bull? Why are we doing this? Was he asking what was going on now? Does he know this is going to be the last time that he's going to be with his mother at home? We don't know for sure, but allow the drama of that just to settle in, because that's the nature of the narrative. And so, verse 26, 
And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to Yahweh for this child I prayed. Can you see her bringing him out? This is the child. You thought I was drunk. You thought I was a worthless woman. I was praying. And you said, May the Lord grant this to you. And he did. Yahweh has granted me my petition that I made to him, and therefore I have lent him to Yahweh. I've given him to Yahweh. As long as he lives, he is lent to Yahweh, and he worshiped Yahweh. They worshiped Yahweh there. You see, it begins with worship in verse 19. It ends with worship in verse 28. That's what they've come to do. Oh, this is far more than just the regular sacrifice. This is the ultimate sacrifice and she is giving over her son, her firstborn son, her only son, in order that he might serve the Lord. Now, I confess to you that I sincerely had every intention of covering three chapters. (laughs) And I have successfully narrowly finished one. And I trust you will bear with me and forgive me that and read ahead in preparation for next week as we get back on track and cover seven chapters. No, probably not. Um, We will figure out what to do going forward, but I simply cannot leave you without pointing you to Christ. Remember, brothers and sisters, that all of this is pointing to Christ, that He is the true and better King. We're going to see this next week that He is ultimately the Anointed One. The very prayer that Hannah gives, Mary herself picks up the last line of that and she prays it in her Magnificat. She knows that this Anointed One is ultimately the Christ child that she will bear. He is our great High Priest, Hebrews 4.14, certainly better than Eli. Praise the Lord for that. And He has gone in not because of the blood of bulls and goats, but because of his own blood. You see, Samuel gave his life to the ministry of Yahweh. The Son of God gave his life to satisfy the wrath of Yahweh in order that we might be received. And he is the Word made flesh. That tabernacle dwelt for 369 years in Shiloh. But according to John 14, when Christ came, He tabernacled among us. He is everything that that was pointing to. And though you can steal the ark and destroy the tabernacle, you can't do anything to Christ. He says, destroy this body, and in three days I raise it up. And it's the result of that raised up body that we now, at this time, gather together to partake of His supper. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for this Word this morning. We confess that it's more than we can handle, certainly more than I can handle. And while intentions were to cover much more, I pray that in your providence you will have arranged for this and that that which has been given is going to be adequate and useful to those who have heard. pray that you would use it in us for your own glory and honor. Fathers, we turn our attention now to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. I pray that you would move in our hearts to see the reality of what is presented here. That this is a shadow, that it's a uh, symbol, but yet it is a very real grace to us. And through it, we are reminded of the sacrifice that you have made. 
Oh, Father, I pray especially for those who might be here today and they have not yet put their faith in Christ, visiting perhaps. Maybe they're here on vacation. Maybe they came by and just for whatever reason decided to enter. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to them the purpose of this table, the limitations of this table, but also the invitation of this table, and that that proclamation goes forth to each and every person in the sound of my voice, that if today they will believe, if today they will receive the truth, the mercy of Christ in the gospel, that today will be the day of salvation for them. I pray these things in your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.